by of man, for he knew what was in man. So you have this interesting conclusion to chapter two that uh, though people were surrounding him and uh, showing some sign of assent due to his miracles that he was doing, Jesus knew that in just a little while they would all forsake him. He knew how fickle a folk we could be. And he didn't really commit himself to men, but he would give men the greatest gift that could ever be committed. And you'll notice that the very last uh, phrase, it says that he knew what was in a man. And I love how chapter three starts up with there was a man. So chapter two, he knew what was in man or in a man. And then chapter three, there was a man. And it's going to get into a story that Jesus is going to know exactly what was in this man, this man, Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is going to find that the only credential that guarantees entrance into heaven is the new birth. I want to repeat that. The only credential that will guarantee entrance into heaven is the new birth. Charles Spurgeon said, if we were asked to read to a dying man who did not know the gospel, we should probably select this chapter as the most suitable one for such an occasion. And what is good for a dying man is good for us all, for that is what we are. And how soon we may actually be at the gates of death, none of us can tell. You know, every single one of us will approach the threshold of death one day. And it's good to know now, to be preemptive, to have the knowledge and the certainty of where we will go. John, 1 John chapter 5 says uh, that those things were written that we might know that we have eternal life. Do you know that you have eternal life where you will go when you die? If it's based upon anything else than that one requirement or that one mark on your identification that you have been born again, then you are putting your trust in a false hope, a damnable hope, for you will go to hell with that counterfeit hope. Here we are introduced to this man of the Pharisees, Named Nicodemus. Nicodemus has been identified by some with a man spelled differently as Nacodemon of Gerion, who was a wealthy Jerusalemite who, according to the Talmud, was entrusted with supplying water to pilgrims as they would approach the festivals. There's no certain evidence of that. It's just an interesting close connection of another man uh, or, a, or another uh, name of Nicodemus in that early time frame. But we see that he was a Pharisee, a Pharisee. This is important context to the story we'll be reading up through verse 15. A Pharisee's whole life was given over and was devoted to keeping the law of God. He was very serious about religion 
And he had a zeal to obey. If you're a parent, you hope your child is like a Pharisee. Man, I just love this kid. They are so obedient. They just have a zeal to obey everything I say. I mean, I might barely whisper it in the kitchen that I want the kitchen cleaned up and the trash taken out and the pillows to the couches picked up off the floor and put back on the couches. I, you know, and I barely whispered it. I barely, in fact, I forgot I said it. Next thing you know, it's all done. Like, wow, it just that little Yeshua, Joshua, Jesus, he is so obedient. What a good little boy, right? Uh, and Nicodemus was the same way, zealous for obedience. The Judaism teaches that the Old Testament has 613 commandments. That's 603 commandments on top of the 10 commandments that you and I are very familiar with. Within those 613 commandments, there were 248 do's and 365 don'ts. And there were 6,000 of these Pharisees whose whole life was to just keep these commands of the Lord. And they could be very difficult ones to keep. And so they would often come up with loopholes uh, on how to get by with maybe bending the rules just a little bit. So, for instance, you weren't supposed to travel more than about uh, 20 paces from your house on the Sabbath day. And so they would set up these sort of uh, bus stops, if you will, 20 paces from each other that they would sort of uh, travel between as waypoints so that they could travel throughout towns and uh, technically never be leaving their house. OK, um, the Sabbath day seems to be a really big part, uh, one that they would create loopholes for, for instance, on the Sabbath day. Uh, you were not to look into a mirror or a reflective glass because you might just see a gray hair and plucking that gray hair would be a breaking of the Sabbath day. So um, it's a good rule for some of us. Just stay away from the mirror and get that salt and pepper going on. and You'll, you'll be right with the Lord. No, I'm just kidding. It's not what this sermon is about. What about tying a knot? Does that count as a work? that you might be able to do on the Sabbath day? Well, uh, maybe, maybe not. You know, uh, you were not allowed to tie a rope around a bucket to drop into a well, but a woman could tie a knot on her apron during the day. So one of the loopholes was have a really long cord on a woman's apron to tie around the bucket and get a little water while she's taking care of uh, dressing herself or preparing the meal or whatnot. So you can see kind of how this goes. And here comes Nicodemus, who's kind of a master of keeping the law, though it's with all sorts of loopholes. Okay, something that we're going to see in these verses, specifically verse uh, one, is that Nicodemus was a man who was morally upstanding. He was a man who was a powerful leader. It says here in verse one that he's a ruler of the Jews. He's a very kind and respectful man. Um, there's something different about him than most Pharisees that you'll see in the scriptures. And uh, that he addresses Jesus as rabbi, which means it's a very respectful term that even goes beyond teacher. It's very personal. And that he says, you're my teacher. And so it's, it's really there's a, some humility and respect and kindness there. 
And uh, Nicodemus is also extremely knowledgeable. In just a couple verses, Jesus is going to call him the teacher of Israel. That he's just kind of known as one of the chief among uh, these Pharisees uh, there uh, that were a part of what would be the Jewish Supreme Court or the Senate of Israel ruling the country. And verse two tells us that this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God for no one can do these signs you do unless God is with them. So it's kind of an interesting story. It's, um, it's very dramatic, you know. Uh, at some point, the Living Translation says, the Living Bible says it was after the sun went down. And we don't really know why this is. There's a little bit of speculation that, you know, Jesus is already to get a bit of a reputation having just made a whip out of cords in chapter two and, and rushing people out of the temple, you know. Uh, he's starting to preach a message that is uh, popular among some, but hated by others, especially the Pharisees. So possibly he's going at night to kind of fly under the radar. Uh, possibly he just kind of got off work and got out of a meeting. It was the only time to meet. We don't really know. There's a little speculation on all ends and there may be some truth to it, but it was at night. And, uh, and, you know, in Bible interpretation, it's not a real healthy practice to say, you know, oh, he came at night because it's a symbol of the darkness of his heart. You know, that's not exactly like real good exegesis of the scripture pulling out. And yet at the same time, there is some truth within the scripture. And if you were to do a big study on it, that Nicodemus's heart at this point in his life was darker than this Judean night that he's walking around in. Even though he's a very strict, morally decent human being, he is still lost in the darkness and the bondage of sin. Nicodemus is on a path to hell, though on the outside he seems probably one of the best moral individuals there is in Israel. And uh, if you're reading the Bible reading plan with us right now, we just are in the book of Isaiah and it's there in Isaiah chapter nine, verse two. It's quoted again in the gospel of Matthew chapter four, when Jesus goes into Galilee, that the people who walk in darkness have seen a great light and those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death on them, the light has dawned. And so Nicodemus fits into that category, no doubt as a ruler of the Jews traveling to the synagogue there in Galilee and Capernaum or in Gamla, all around the Decapolis. And, uh, and you know what? He was a guy that was walking in darkness. And as he's seeing Jesus being attested by miracles, he's seeing and witnessing a great light. Isn't it exciting when people come to you and ask a reason for the hope that's within you. Ask of you to give uh, some sort of assurance to where they might go in eternity. I had an incredible opportunity this week. I got a phone call from a lady that five years ago, our church had been out plowing snow during a blizzard, doing that ministry that we do during the heavy snow periods around here. And there was a, a house on Yellow Pine that apparently we did. And I, and uh, Dustin and Jacqueline Cossett were with me at that house. 
And I don't remember this, but apparently we did the back deck as well and got to have a great conversation with these individuals. And, and then we left and five years went by and this woman couldn't remember uh, in the course of time. She, she did remember this. Her, her husband has died. Her daughter has died of breast cancer and her son died on uh, July 17th. And she was looking for a pastor. She couldn't remember my name, couldn't remember our church, uh, but she remembered the Cossets from Les Schwab. So she goes in, sees Jacqueline, uh, gets my number, gets in touch with me. Russell and I visit her, get to pray with her. And she just asked if I'd come pray at the funeral uh, on Friday. And, you know, I was kind of like, oh, man, I kind of usually do the whole funeral. But, you know, I, I mean, that's fine. I just I guess I can come and just pray. And you guys all know my prayers are usually so short. They're not like a sermon in and of themselves at all. But, you know, I was like, okay, you know, I'll step out and do this. And, and I ended up going to the funeral on Friday up at the cemetery. And, uh, and I just, you know, the people were standing around a little bit awkward. That's normal at memorial services. No one knew what to do. And the time for the memorial service was, has passed. And I kind of said, hey, do you have anyone facilitating this? And this little old gal, just so sweet, just says, no, I don't know what to do. Well, I have you. And I said, all right, you know, and it was just so great. It was just, it was one of the only, I've done an off the cuff wedding before. If you may remember around 2015, never done an off the cuff funeral. And it was just amazing as we're in this, uh, the scene and the context of graves and able to preach the gospel to about 20 people that I recognize from the community about the victory that Jesus has accomplished to us through the cross, through his burial, through the resurrection, all of that in light of his perfect life and death. And I just got to share the gospel. I got to share about the resurrection that we all will face. And some will be resurrected towards judgment and condemnation. Some will be resurrected to eternal life in paradise. And it was just a sweet time. And if you've ever gotten to share the gospel with people that are just drinking it in, this was a crowd that was drinking it in. And so, you know, we ought to pray, even as we just feel like going through the gospel of John is a season of evangelism for our church. Uh, Just pray that God would bring people calling you up after five years of like snow, you know, scooping the snow off of their walk. Or you might have had a conversation with someone. Let's be praying that God would bring the Nicodemuses into our life. But we live in a society that would welcome a conversation with, with a Nicodemus because they seem like they'd be the easy ones. You got a very, very morally upright individual, very polished on the outside, maybe just one of the best of the best of the community coming by. And this will be a shoe in. This will be, you know, all you got to do is really pat them on the back and tell them that they're okay. But you guys, that would be, that would be a message that would lead this individual to hell. But it's the lie that our society wants us to give to people, that we're all created good people and that a good God will just look on you on that day and see that you've done your best. And then at the end of the day, maybe there were more good things than outweighed the bad. And you know what? Just come on into the kingdom of God. But that's not at all how the holiness, the righteousness and the judgment of God towards sinners goes. And Jesus knew what was in Nicodemus, that Nicodemus comes and kind of kind of might think, you know what, 
I'm probably good. And Jesus is probably just going to be like, hey, well done, man. Good job tending Israel. Doing a great job, Nick. You know, just keep it up. And, uh, oh, that reminded me one sermon called this Nick at night, right? Okay, anyways. Okay. And, uh, you know, you're doing great, Nick. But Jesus knew what was really in Nicodemus. And he knew that Nicodemus didn't need to be seduced by a relativistic environment like our culture is. Oh, just whatever's good for you and whatever works for you and in your circles and truth is relative and goodness is relative when really goodness is very objective. It's the goodness of God as laid out in the scriptures. And that goodness only comes through God himself. It only comes by impartation of God's grace. And he says here, Rabbi, my master, we know that you're a teacher come from God. How do they know that he's a teacher that's come by God? And it says, because no one can do the things that you're doing unless God is with them. Unless God is with them, Jesus is actually in the course of his ministry going to show he's going to do one better. God's not only with me, I am God. I am he. I was before Abraham, he's going to say. And it's so interesting that Nicodemus comes and asks Jesus. And it's interesting. There's not really a question, actually. We always kind of think there's a question like the rich young ruler. What must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? We kind of throw that verse in here. There's not a question. And yet there's a question within the statement. I like the living Bible. I remember when I was a kid, uh, my dad had the living Bible um, next to his recliner, his lazy boy growing up. Just an, uh, some sort of pea green Bible cover, you know, from the 70s, you know. And, uh, and I never read out of that version, but I appreciate it in this text. And it, it puts it this way. After dark one night, a Jewish religious leader named Nicodemus, a member of the sect of the Pharisees, came for an interview with Jesus. I kind of like that. It's a, it's a Walter Cronkite, you know, um, moment here, interviewing Jesus. And sir, he says, the living goes on to say, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miracles are proof enough of this. A theologian named Edersheim says, it must have been a mighty power of conviction to break down prejudice so far as to lead this old Sanhedrinist to acknowledge to a Galilean untrained in the schools as a teacher come from God and to refer to him for direction on perhaps the most delicate and important point in Jewish theology. What is it that gets a fellow like Nicodemus with all of his training out of bed in the middle of the night to come talk to a guy that never went to Bible college? There's something about him. There's something about this man. And so we had the question in verse one and two, a question behind the statement. And here we have in verse three, the answer. And the answer has a few different points here. If you'll jot them down or, or attempt to remember them. Number one is the absolute necessity of new birth. The absolute necessity of new birth. In verse three, Jesus answered and said to him, 
Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, Mark's gospel, chapter one, tells us that Jesus began his ministry by going around Galilee saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So Jesus has been preaching the kingdom and here he's going to tell how one may enter that kingdom, even one like Nicodemus. Jesus is going to have a moment of evangelism here. Evangelism comes from the Greek word euangelion or evangelion. And it means to speak the good news, to speak of the good news from the battlefield. If you were to win a fight or win a battle, you know, you would send a messenger back to the back of the lines to declare that the battle was a victory. And that's what being a Christian is. It's being an evangelist to tell people the good news from the battlefield. And here Jesus does that. Andrew Murray wrote a book called With Christ in the School of Prayer. And here we have With Christ in the School of Evangelism. We can learn something from Jesus. Sinclair Ferguson says that the pulse beat of God's heart has an evangelistic rhythm. God is an evangelist and he saves people to be evangelists. And here in Jesus's evangelism, he says this truly, truly, or verily, verily, or amen, amen, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, we're going to see here in the next few verses that Nicodemus is totally unprepared for what Jesus says here in verse 3. And we know that because Jesus throws this double, I'm going to say double entendre because it sounds fancy. I don't know if that's really what it is. But he throws in the double here. Most assuredly, truly, truly, I'm telling you, it sounds crazy, but you've got to be born again. Now, in the Jewish culture, members of other nations who would become what are called proselytes or converters into Judaism, they would come and go through a process of baptism. You know, John the Baptist wasn't doing anything all that crazy. Uh, He was doing something that a lot of Jews did, or rather what Gentiles did when they were becoming Jews. And so once they had become Jews, it was often referred to them that they were uh, born from above after that baptism. So if Jesus had said, Nicodemus, I'm telling you, every Gentile must be born again. Every non-Jew must be born again. Nicodemus would have understood that. Yeah, totally, because they're not Jews. The Jews had an understanding and they were taught this by the rabbis that if you were born with Jewish blood in your veins, cha-ching, you just had won the jackpot, automatically get into heaven just by being a Jew. In fact, some of the rabbis even taught that Father Abraham sat at the gates of hell 
just to make sure that no Jew accidentally lost his way and found himself going into hell. Oh no, Father Abraham was there. No there, Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. Right arm, left arm. Okay, you have to be raised in children's ministry to get that song. Or not, that didn't even sound like, okay. Father Abraham, he'll protect you from going to hell if you're a Jew, right? But that's not what Jesus says. In the Living Bible, Jesus replies to Nicodemus and says, With all of the earnestness that I possess, I tell you this. Unless you are born again, you can never get into the kingdom of God. Was it Ross Perot or George Bush Sr. that said, read my lips? George Bush Sr., right? How old are we here? Okay. It is in, you know, his campaign speech. I think it was George uh, Sr. Where he says, read my lips. No new taxes. Okay. Come on, Perry. You know what I'm talking about. Okay. I mean, you still voted for Clinton, but still, I mean, (laughs) unforgettable speech by the Herbert Walker. But what Jesus is saying here is Nicodemus Read my lips. No one gets into heaven without a new birth. Guys, this is not some transient modern movement that the new age movement is doing. You know, you hear about these people getting born again and they've had this experience and they go to some strange meditation in some yoga instructor's house where they then get yoga balls and pillows from the couches and create a uterus that you then push through the pressurized couch cushions and yoga balls and pop out the other side and say, oh, I feel so new and revitalized. That's not what we're talking about. There's a lot of weird stuff. I never personally have been through anything like that on purpose, but... But rather, this is a timeless truth. This is relevant to every generation. Essentially, to be born again means to have new life. The theological term for being born again is that it is regeneration. It's not simply a moral or religious reform. Do better, would you? It's not that at all. But it's the bringing in of new life in your heart. From the inside out. To belong to the heavenly kingdom, Tenny writes, is to be born into it. To experience the kingdom of God. You must be born again. Look back in chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. As many as receive Jesus... To them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. In two weeks from now, we're going to get to John 3, 16, where we see you're born again when you believe in him. And at the end of this week in verse 15, we'll see as you believe in him, you will not perish, but you'll have everlasting life. It's through believing in Jesus Trusting in Jesus, resting in Jesus, declaring Jesus to be right. And that everything he says is yes, yes, and amen. And as many who would receive on him and believe in him, 
To them, he would give the right to have a new birth and to be called children of God. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 15, it says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything, but a changed life is what matters. And if this is your first time to church, um, this was a really weird moment for you because we're talking about circumcision. And that's not typically, you know, dinner table conversation, right? Um, let alone public park declaration, okay? But essentially what Paul is saying is, In Christ Jesus, it doesn't matter if you're a Democrat or a Republican. It doesn't matter if you have Native American blood, you're Cherokee, you're Choctaw, you're an Indian outlaw, you know, you're a Tim McGraw fan, you like country music, you like rap, you spike your hair, you comb it down, you wear collared shirts, you wear flip flops, you're a little bit country, you're a little bit rock and roll, whatever. Okay, all of the external stuff. It doesn't matter. What matters is, are you a new creation? Have you been born again? And Titus chapter three, verse five tells us that it's not by works of righteousness or external stuff that we've done, but it's by his mercy that he saved us and he washed us and regenerated us. There's that word regeneration, being born again. And Titus 3 goes on to say, and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Okay, regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. That's what it means to be born again. And so what Jesus is doing is he is flipping Nicodemus's theology upside down. And he's telling Nicodemus, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter if you're a Gentile or a Pharisee, you must be born again. And the word you there, you might underline it. It actually, it's translated, you all must be born again. So you Nicodemus and all the other Pharisees and all the people within the Sanhedrin and all y'all, okay? All y'all got to be born again. Well, what about the all y'all? But she was born in a all them all. She all, he all, we all, they all got to be born again. You must be born again. I just somehow uh, Facebook has been listening to my conversations. And, uh, you know, then all of a sudden these ads pop up for things you could buy. And you're like, I was just talking to my brother-in-law about how I needed some of those. You know, it's like a farm implement or something like that. You're like, that's crazy. You know, and uh, it's a T-shirt that this really cool guy's wearing. And it says, ye must be born again. And I'm like, man, I love my Jesus saves bro shirt, you know, or my hell. No, I won't go shirt. Um, I don't wear that one to church. I don't want to offend, but it just has a big hell right here. Okay, with a question mark. Okay, Uh, but this shirt says, ye must be born again. And I'm like, man, you gotta get the printing press out and start heat screening some of those at the church. Wear it around, declare it from the mountains. You've gotta be born again. We think we can fit ourselves into the kingdom of God by our own merits. But that may be the very thing that keeps us from the kingdom of God. 
So much of religion tells us that by our own striving, we can bridge the gap between sinful man and a holy God. But therefore, we remove a holy Christ who bridges that gap for us. And so whoever might come to you like a Nicodemus in the night, even upright, decent people are without hope and without God in the world. And these individuals don't need information. They need regeneration. We've got to be preaching. You must be born again. This isn't the something that we can do for ourselves. If Jesus had said, unless you are washed, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Then we might think, well, then I can wash myself. A man might be able to wash himself, but he can never birth himself. Being born again, you have no control over. Being born the first time, it's not about you. And Jesus is going to get into this in just a minute. But look at verse four. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? I wonder if, you know, if Jesus and Nick are having a little conversation and and Nicodemus kind of a little tongue in cheek. Kind of says, hey, how does a guy do this? Climb back up in his mom's womb, you know, come on. You know, what's going on? It might have been a little bit of a fun conversation. But perhaps Nicodemus is essentially saying it is very difficult for a person with adult experiences to revert back to the simplicity of childhood. That's a hard thing. I've got all kinds of experience. I'm like at the top of the religious system of Judaism. It's a, it's, this is teaching a dog new tricks. This is putting a dog on a new leash. Create your own dog metaphor right now, if you will. Okay. But how can I, how can we do this? How is this possible? Billy Graham said, had the opportunity to week to speak to Winston Churchill before Churchill died And as he shared the gospel with him, Churchill said to Billy Graham, it's too late for me now, Dr. Graham. It's too late for me. I'm an old man. How can I be born again after I've done so much? It takes humility. And in verse five, Jesus answers and says, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And so what Jesus is going to start doing right now in his conversation with Nicodemus, he's going to start using Old Testament principles and Old Testament stories to illustrate for Nicodemus why and how he must be born again. And so Nicodemus would know and been familiar with water from the Old Testament being a symbol of renewal and regeneration. If you got a chance and you got your Bible, flip to the Old Testament to Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25. What we have in Ezekiel 36 is the promise for the new covenant that will come. Where man, don't, man doesn't try to work their way and earn favor by keeping the law, but they realize that God gives favor by grace. And in Ezekiel 36, 25, here's this promise of the new covenant. It's also in Jeremiah 33. 
But it says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. And I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. So as Jesus speaks of being born of water, uh, he's speaking of some Old Testament things. It's more than being born of, uh, you know, the uterus and the water there, the water that breaks. It's, it's more Old Testament that Jesus is trying to get across. And that Nicodemus, you know the promise that those that come to God by faith will have clean water sprinkled upon them. And that stone cold heart that they have that doesn't know God and doesn't want to obey God and can't even obey God, doesn't want to read the Bible, doesn't want to have relationship with God. I'm going to take that stone cold heart out and I'm going to put a a soft heart in that beats and is alive and can know God. Psalm 51, seven, the psalmist says in that confession passage, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. And so Jesus is telling Nicodemus that there's got to be a renewal in your heart from the Holy Spirit, a sprinkling of water, a cleansing that will make you white. Being born of water and being born of spirit. Flip over there in Ezekiel 10 chapters to Ezekiel 37. And uh, I'm going to just paraphrase and you can kind of, you know, look at it as you're there. But the Lord speaks to Ezekiel. He takes him to the overlooking of a big valley. And this valley is filled with all sorts of dry bones. Perhaps there was a large battle there and all of these individuals died in the battle. And it's just a bunch of dry bones. And the Lord asks Ezekiel, can, this, can these bones come alive again? And Ezekiel says, oh, you know the answer to that question. And so the Lord causes the great wind of the Spirit to come over the valley. And it says very dramatically that the bones began to rattle. You know, and they begin to kind of be propped up, you know, and this femur bone. And I don't know any anatomy or what the bones are called. So <laughs> femur and hemer and all those other lemurs, you know, and they all kind of get together and shake and jostle and the, the neck bones connected to the sternum, the sternum's connected to the collarbone, you know, and all this is happening. And uh, all of a sudden, uh, not only do the skeletons come together, but then tendons and sinews and flesh and, and blood and heartbeats begin to happen until there's a huge number of people that have been completely put back together and made new. They were born of the wind. They were born of the wind of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is giving Nicodemus, a teacher of these things, a picture of the new life, the new birth. In verse 6, Jesus says, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And so Jesus makes a big distinction between Uh, Just a physical birth and a spiritual birth and how you've got to have a spiritual birth as well. And so verse seven says, do not marvel that I said to you, you all must be born again. Jesus marvels that Nicodemus is marveling because Nicodemus ought to know all of this. 
This is, this is nothing new. It was prophesied in the Old Testament. Don't marvel, Nicodemus. I'm marveling that you're marveling. I'm wondering that you're wondering that you all have to be born again, that there's an absolute necessity for a new birth, the supernatural work of God, that the physical stuff was not ever supposed to be what it was all about. And then look at verse eight. The wind blows where it wishes. Can you guys give me 10 more minutes? I know that it's like starting to strain and you know, it's cool. I'm, I try to remember where we're at and read the room and whatnot. Just 10 more minutes of crazy jokes and then another 15 minutes of some deep theology and then a couple worship songs and then we'll be done. Okay, so again, okay. Give me 10 minutes, okay? Maybe a good Spurgeon quote at the end. All right. Time's clock's a ticking, okay? Verse eight. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who's born of the Spirit. So the wind is a great illustration of the work of the Holy Spirit in bringing salvation to man and woman's lives. The wind is so unpredictable. Last week, we were up at the reservoir. We had such a great time, didn't we? Mark your calendar for August 30th as well. We're going to be up there again. We don't have a park service reserved, uh, so we'll be back up there again August 30th. So get that on your calendar. But we were having such a great time, more people than any reservoir service we've ever had. It was so great. Something like nine baptisms. Oh, it was so wonderful. Skiing, boating, just so wonderful. The weather was great. And then it was about four o'clock and all of a sudden this mighty rushing wind came through and, you know, sand was shooting across the beach, sand blasting the skin off of your ankles. You were like, it's okay. We'll just stick around a little bit longer. Then pretty soon these canopies started hovering in the air and started wanting to fly off. And, and we had to unstrap the canvas from the canopies so that they, you know, and people were trying to save the canopies and and at four o'clock, it was like, yeah, man, we could be here all evening. It's going to be so. And then pretty soon it was like, pack your stuff. Let's get out of here or we're all going to die. Okay. Same thing happened at home group this week. It was a beautiful day. We're getting ready to have our home group at the bike park and I'm making the biscotti, you know, and it's going to be awesome. And then we show up and I'm getting this wonderful gourmet meal that I've prepared out on the table and just a white squall came out of nowhere you know, cut right through me. I'm glad I've got the insulation that I've got because it was a cold night that night. But Jesus is just saying wind is so unpredictable. And so how, that's how it is in the way of the Lord. Ecclesiastes 11, 25, 1 Corinthians 2, 11. It just speaks of man, the Lord has his sovereign plan and there's a hidden work of the spirit in the human heart that can't be controlled or seen But its effects, just like the wind, are unmistakably evident. And if you're a Christian here today, you didn't become a Christian because you're particularly lovable or smart or talented or you're just the total strong and elegant thing of the world. You're a Christian because the Spirit of God blew upon you. He wished for you. He elected you. And he wanted to blow inside your soul as we sing the caverns caverns of your soul. And he swept through your heart and he brought you to new life. 
He made you alive in God. There was a sovereign work of God that was just unpredictable. Some of you were saved out of families and lifestyles that there's no explanation, but God's grace in calling you out of darkness into his wonderful life. There's no way we could save ourselves. We can no more save ourselves than a baby could birth himself. In verse 9, Nicodemus answers and says to Jesus, how can these things be? Jesus just told him, don't wonder how these things could be. And Nicodemus goes right into, well, how can they be? And you're just never listening. Okay. <laughs> Jesus says, don't marvel. But here Nicodemus is marveling. It's going to happen all the time in the, in the scriptures. I like the living Bible. Born again, exclaims Nicodemus. What do you mean? How can a young man or how can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? What do you mean in verse nine again? What do you mean? This is crazy talk. And so not only have we seen in Jesus's answer the absolute necessity of being born again. Here we have the supreme tragedy of Jewish unbelief. In verse 10, Jesus answers and says to him, Are you the teacher of Israel? I I emphasize teacher. I meant to emphasize the word the. Are you the teacher of Israel? And you don't know these things? A man tuned to the word of God should know how the scriptures point to this. Verse 11, most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and we testify what we've seen and you do not receive our witness. Who's Jesus talking about here? Has he got a mouse in his pocket? We, he could be speaking about how the father, he says, I I only speak what the father tells me to speak. I testify of him, uh, the work of the Holy Spirit. First John has an interesting scribal note in first John five, six through eight. uh, It's not not believed that it was in the original manuscript, but it's in our Bibles and that it was a a scribal note on the side of a Bible that got morphed on in there doesn't affect the inerrancy of the scriptures because we know that it was a scribal note. Uh, And yet it's true. It's just not as inspired as the rest of the Bible that there are three who bear witness in heaven, the father, the son and the Holy Spirit. Also, there's the prophets. There's the word of God and they testify and the Jews won't receive this message of salvation by grace through faith. You must be born again. Look at verse 12. If I've told you earthly things and you do believe them, how will you believe if or rather, if, I'm sorry, I messed up there. If you, if I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? You're not ready for the meat yet when you can't handle the milk. Verse 13 No one's ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the son of man. That final phrase, who is in heaven, is not in the original. It's good to know these things, right? Um, And so Jesus is essentially saying, like, I'm the son of man. I've come down from heaven and I'm giving you the, the real news here. And then in verse 14, in the answer of Jesus, we have the complete sufficiency of his death for sin. We'll have the worship team come on up as we wrap this up. Here's another story that Nicodemus would have known since his childhood. And it says, Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. Even so, must the son of man be lifted up? 
You guys know the story, Numbers chapter 21, the children of Israel are complaining against God. And so God sends vipers out to strike the children of Israel. And as they're struck by these vipers, people are dying. And so they call out to the Lord to save them from the poison of the vipers. And so the Lord tells Moses, make a pole with a bronze serpent. Fun fact, serpent is from the Hebrew seraphim, which is one form of angels in the Old Testament, the seraphim. And so when Isaiah 6 sees the seraphim in heaven taking the coal, it, some understanding is that it's almost snake-like. And we get so freaked out about snakes, but that angels often have almost a snake-type appearance to them or a serpentine. So don't get all weirded out about it. But the interesting thing is that here you have a bronze seraphim put up on the pole. And the story is that when Moses put that bronze serpent up on the pole, any of the people who had been struck by the venom of the vipers, if any of them would just look at the pole and look at the serpent, they'd be healed. Like talk about easy schmeasy, easy peasy, right? Like, oh, you little rascal. You know, oh, oh, I'm good. You know, but our pride in us will not let us believe that it's that easy. Can't be that easy. And so many would not look and would perish, but many would look and be healed. And the crazy thing is the people that we are in the book of second Kings, you see that the people had saved that snake and they named it Nehushtan and they would worship this snake as if it had healing powers in itself rather than that it was the Lord and, and what this serpent represented as trusting in God to heal and to save. Notice that it wasn't the proximity of the children of Israel to the pole. Well, I live around the pole. My, I'm around the neighborhood and so I'll be healed. It wasn't the knowledge that there was a serpent on a pole. Hey, did you hear about the pole around here these days with the serpent? Oh, yeah. It was looking to the serpent on the pole. And Jesus uses that as an example that if anyone would look to him who will also be raised up on the tree. New Testament is just full of verses that talk about Jesus hanging on the tree for our sins. That if anyone would look to Jesus for salvation from the curse and the venom and the poison of sin. What does verse 15 say? If anyone believes in him, if anyone looks to him, if anyone trusts to him, who's been raised up on the tree, on the cross, look at the end of verse 15 and we're done. They would not perish, but have everlasting life. And as we close here today, I want to ask you, have you looked to Jesus in the same way the Jewish people looked to the bronze snake? Have you looked to Jesus for forgiveness of sin, to change your heart, to come into your life and to just blow through the caverns of your soul and make you a new creation? Memorize verse three, friends. You must be born again. Have you been born again? 
I'm not asking if you're a moralistic Nicodemus. I'm not asking if you were raised Lutheran, Presbyterian, Episcopalian, Calvary Chapel, or Baptist. I'm asking, have you been born again? And I mentioned I wanted to close with a little story from Spurgeon. Because Charles Spurgeon, who was known as the Prince of Preachers back in the 1880s, you know, he was raised in, a, in an English Congregationalist church. Man, if there's anyone going to heaven, it's kids that are raised in the English Congregationalist church. Am I right? And he actually would preach messages. He'd grow up and start preaching. But he felt as he preached that it was totally distant and separate from him and that he himself hadn't received this. He was empty. And he was on his way one day to preach a message devoid of life within himself. And a big snowstorm came. And he had to duck in an alley where there happened to be a church. So he went into this church and sought shelter. And let me just read you this account of Charles Spurgeon's conversion. It was ye- I was years and years upon the brink of hell. I mean, in my own feeling, I was unhappy. I was desponding. I was despairing. I dreamed of hell. My life was full of sorrow and wretchedness, believing that I was lost. Charles Spurgeon used these strong words, and I'm reading an article now, to describe his adolescent years. Despite his Christian upbringing, he was christened as an infant and raised in the congregational church. And despite his own efforts, he read the Bible and prayed daily Spurgeon woke one January Sunday in 1850 with a deep sense of his need of deliverance. Because of a snowstorm, the 15-year-old's path to church was diverted down a side street for shelter. He ducked into the primitive Methodist chapel on Artillery Street. An unknown substitute lay preacher stepped into the pulpit. Spurgeon writes in his diary, that the regular preacher was gone and it must have been some shoe salesman or cobbler that was filling the pulpit that day. We know how that is, don't we, Adam? <laughs> Just teasing. Farmers. We're the best, right? What, listen to how the Lord uses this cobbler in Spurgeon's life. An unknown substitute lay preacher stepped into the pulpit and read his text. Isaiah forty-five twenty-two. Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth for I am God and there is no one else. So here's his autobiography recording his reaction. This preacher had not much to say. Thank God for that compelled him to keep on repeating his scripture. And there was nothing else needed by me at any rate except his text. Then stopping, he pointed to where I was sitting under the gallery and he said, that young man there looks very miserable. And he shouted, as I think only a primitive Methodist can, look, look, young man, look now. Then I had this vision, not a vision to my eyes, but to my heart. And I saw what a savior Christ was. 
Now, I can never tell you how it was, but I no sooner saw whom I was to believe than I also understood that I was to believe. And I did believe in one moment. And as the snow fell on my road home from the little house of prayer, I thought every snowflake talked with me and told me of the pardon I had found. For I was white as the driven snow through the grace of God. And upon his return home, his appearance caused his mother to exclaim, something wonderful has happened to you. For the next months, young Spurgeon searched the scriptures to know more fully the value of the jewel which God had given me. I found that believers ought to be baptized. And so he was baptized by immersion four months later in the river Lark. After which he joined a Baptist church. And so as we close out, I want to shout like Spurgeon did to that young man. Look, look, see the vision of the Lord upon the tree. See the emblem of salvation for everyone who would believe. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved today. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and be born again. And as soon as you believe, you'll have a new heart and a new life. And the snow might have proclaimed to Spurgeon the new grace upon him. But maybe the purifying UV rays of the sun will be speaking of the purity that's been put in your heart today. Let's pray.